Putting a creative idea out into the world can be a scary concept. How are people going to react to this? Am I going to be able to present this the way I envisioned? What if people completely misinterpret it? Today, I'm talking with artist and educator Matt Hill about this topic and about a few of the things that went through his head leading up to a project he wanted to start. It's not possible. It's too complicated. People are going to make fun of me. Um, I've never worked with professional models. Um, I don't ask people to get naked. And I'm not a fashion designer. Matt's talking about creating intricately detailed cut paper fashion that he would ask models to wear while photographing them. I'm excited for you to hear how he overcame these roadblocks. A short side note about this episode. I almost didn't publish this episode for very similar reasons to those that we'll be talking about today. This was the very first interview I had ever recorded, and Matt was kind enough to be my test subject. But being my first interview, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I placed the mic in the wrong spot, set my levels incorrectly, accidentally overwrote my files with destructive editing, and made a few other novice mistakes that you'll hear throughout the recording. It doesn't sound great. My first thought was that I just wouldn't air this episode, but then I thought, you know what? This is exactly why I'm doing this project. So today, you'll get to hear a pretty bad recording of an interview that hopefully transcends the audio quality and leaves you with something encouraging. This is Brandon Recton, and welcome to The Creative Struggle. Can we start off just by telling me a little bit, tell me just a little bit about what first got you interested in art and where did you, where did you get started? Where was the first time that you thought like, oh, this is, I'm really interested in creating things? Now that I think about it, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Um, my mom is an artist hmm? and my grandparents for 30 years ran a wildlife art gallery. So art has always been in my life. Yeah. So as soon as I was I was aware of something. I was aware of art at the same time because mm -hmm. my mom was uh, finishing her schooling at the time and she was studying with a sculptor and she was into photography and we had a dark room in the bathroom and the, the ruby lith over the window and uh, many, many other forms of, of art in the house. And to see her practice inspired me as a child. And when I was curious, she gave me everything I wanted regarding, you know, the, the tools to make art and said, yeah, be happy, do it. Mm -hmm. So what type of art did she do? And like, what did you gravitate toward one thing in particular? Well, she she's practiced many forms of art during her life. Um, the thing she did for the longest was watercolor painting. Mm -hmm. And she worked with a lot of a lot of artists in New Jersey where we ended up. Um, and did a lot of shows and stuff like that. Uh, it was it was the photography part that really got me. She and my father both were into photography, and they both had their own SLR, mm -hmm. which I believe was unusual for the time, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And um, so they would both be taking photographs of us and the stuff around us. And we lived in the Adirondacks, so there was plenty to photograph that was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I think the photography stuck with me the most because it was it was most relatable. It was less um, it was less about thinking, you know. But it was also definitely an art form uh, because it was hard. Mm -hmm. You know, you couldn't just. My grandfather, who was also 
into photography, but never a pro, um, had instant cameras. When he brought the Polaroids around, the joy came. Mm -hmm. you know, that's when you realize that photography was connected to pressing a button and then something happened. It, it just happened so quickly that you wanted to waste the dollar a sheet that it cost, you know, because you wanted to see more of them. So um, I, I think photography just, uh, it, it's always had a special place in my heart, but it didn't gel until I was in high school. So what happened in, in high school that really, like, really focused your passion? Well, this is, this is interesting. I was a jock thespian artist. I played football for four years. I played lacrosse for eight. Mm -hmm. uh, I threw shot and track. Um, and I was also into theater. I was in musicals and, uh, and spoken performance, too. And, and I wanted to get into the, the advanced placement art classes. But there was a teacher who um, really didn't like me. So it, was, it, was, it disencouraged me a little bit. When football season ended my senior year of high school, uh, I was hanging out with my nerdy friends because I was in the, the G&T English. Mm -hmm. Did you have like two separate groups of friends, like jock friends and nerdy friends? Or That's funny. I had no friends. No friends. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I had many acquaintances. Okay. There was almost 500 kids in my graduating class, and I knew everyone, mm -hmm. but I really didn't have friends per se. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was all over. I was, I was a social dilettante. But I, I guess what it really comes down to, it, I, I actually, that's the way I viewed it then. I actually, my f best friends who were actually friends were all of the nerds and geeks. Um, and that's how I got, really got into photography is um, when the season was finishing up, uh, my friends at the high school newspaper said, hey, we need a photography editor and you can be the photographer too if you want. And I, I I turned to my mom and I said, can I borrow your camera? And, hey, I really want one of my own. And lo and behold, for Christmas, I got my first camera, which is a Yashica FX3000 with a Tamron 24-70 to 70 zoom, completely manual. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do I use this? And she said, well, you have to learn photography to use it. I said, okay. So things are starting to come together a little bit for me. Like I'm starting to see kind of like the trajectory of you're talking about um, – being into like theater and photography and starting to make a little bit more sense how you got into like the paper cutting. So can you, those things seemed in my mind, at least related are, are they for you? They are in, in my freshman year of high school, Mrs. Sheckman was my art teacher. I remember her name and I remember her. She was one of my favorite art teachers. She gave us all an assignment after showing us Matisse's work at the end of his life when he couldn't hold a brush. Mm -hmm. He used giant shears to cut shapes out of paper and then gave us X-Acto knives and stacks of construction paper and said, your job is not to add, your job is to subtract. Mm -hmm. I want you to subtract from these pieces of paper and then layer them up and see what happens. And I was, it, was, it was probably the first time that I got that meticulous with art. But I found that the world just sort of fell away when I was doing that. And I made this three or four layered piece that ended up winning a New Jersey State Arts competition and touring the state for a year. And then promptly forgot about paper art. Huh. It wasn't so until many, much later in my life that I picked it up. How many years was it between that point and like when you picked it back up more recently? Uh, probably had to have been about 15 years. Oh, wow. Maybe 12. Yeah, it was... 
So it was just sitting back there the whole time, just like waiting for... It was. It took a catastrophe for me to pick it up. All right, well, let's talk about that. What was uh, the catastrophe that happened? Well, people change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was married at the time. And, uh, and the marriage was kind of falling apart. And I didn't know what to do with a lot of the, the feelings that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to do harmful things with those feelings. Uh, and I needed an outlet for it. And I was sitting in my home all alone uh, with a stack of a hundred sheets of white Bristol paper that my soon-to-be ex-wife's parents had given me. Mm. And then I saw the exacto knife sitting near it. They weren't deliberately near each other, just all the art supplies were together. And I looked at it and I had a flashback to Mrs. Shepman's art class and how I was able to focus like I'd never focused before when I was making that cut paper art. So I sat down and I said, all right, I have really no plan of what I'm going to do, except I don't want to think about what I'm afraid is going to happen. And I don't want to think about all the things that I don't like that have happened. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to make some shapes. And it allowed me over the course of a week or two when I was making my first piece to start to form a relationship with the present instead of those other things. Mm. Um, and, and I finished that first piece and I felt like, oh, well, I did something that wasn't worrying or wasn't, you know, trying to affect somebody's future or my future. Mm-hmm. All I did was make, and I, I remember the joy of making, uh, and, and I showed it to my best friend and, and he said, holy shit, where the fuck did this come from? Mm-hmm. And he, he already knew we'd done a lot of photography on road trips before. I said, well, this and that and this and that. He goes, okay, you're going to sit down and you're going to make more because this is good for you. Nice. I said, all right. I, I don't know if I agree with you, but I'm going to. What was that first piece that you made? Uh, it was probably one of the most intricate things I've made. It was full of symbolism for me at the time. Um, although I wasn't trying to be deliberate about it. Mm-hmm. There are things that just came through during the subtraction process hmm. that ended up holding value and meaning to me. Um, all of these pieces are rather surreal mm-hmm. uh, or non-representational. Um, and that's one thing that I, I find joy in when I'm making them. In fact, I'm very deliberate about not being deliberate. Uh-huh. So it's like very stream of conscious. I'll I'll tell you what the recipe was that I found out. As I started moving forward with making more pieces, I would sit down and do the same thing I did the first time, which is I'm not sitting down to make something. I'm sitting down to make shapes. Mm -hmm. So I would cut a shape, the first thing, and I can point to every single piece and show you the first piece I cut. Yeah. I would make a shape that was interesting to me that I'd never made before. Hmm. And then I'd say, all right, well, what goes next to this? And I'd make another shape. And I would play with the thickness of the paper in between each to create negative space or not mm-hmm. deliberately. And I just I would start playing with those relationships. And somewhere along the line, inevitably, something appears that I want to occur- encourage. I guess this is how people who whittle wood kind of feel like. Yeah. Except I've heard it described that they see something in the wood and they work on getting it. 
Right. This is not that. I am. I give myself permission every time I sit down to cut to fail. Mm-hmm. I give myself permission to just sit down and make shapes with no destination in mind, simply for the joy of making. Mm-hmm. And that's. And if I choose along the way to encourage something that's developing, then that's fine. But it wasn't like I said, if I don't make this at the end, I have to punish myself because I failed. Mm. And that's the freedom that I found in making paper art, or at least the way that I do it, is that not having a goal is the goal. Hmm. That sounds incredibly freeing because I know that I, I end up getting jammed up a lot when I'm like, when I have a very specific thing that I'm, that I'm going toward. And if you make like one wrong move or you do something like that you didn't anticipate doing and then suddenly you feel like the whole thing's messed up. But I mean, if you're, if you're approaching it from the fact that like, you know, I can't, I can't mess this up. That must just open up a lot of doors for creativity that way. Absolutely. And it was the freedom that I needed. Yeah. Because there's so many other things that I felt like I was failing at. Was this in conjunction with kind of like your photographing of the pieces too? Or were you just kind of doing that by itself and then the photography aspect came later? Oh, that's that's a good question. I will rewind for a second. Okay. In, in my teens, when I started doing the photography for the school newspaper, I, of course, started doing personal photography too. And within months of getting my camera... I borrowed my mom's tripod and her bulb cable release, and I bought myself a Vivitar 283 flash. Mm-hmm. And I went out with my friend Brian in the graveyard in Flemington. I love telling this story. It's the inception. This is the origin point of my night photography. Oh, excellent. Uh, we were out in the graveyard, and I had a what-if moment. What if we do this? What if I, I had bought this circular fisheye adapter for the 28 to 72? Mm-hmm. So I made this insanely cool odd effect of a circular photograph within a rectangle. And I was thinking of round edges versus hard edges. So I had my friend stand right in front of it. We're up on the hill in Flemington overlooking uh, the town. And I said, all right, I focus, I set it up, and I pop the flash when the shutter's open. And he walked out of the frame. I said, what'd you do that for? He goes, you didn't tell me not to. (laughs) I said, oh, Fine. So I just kind of guessed when I should close the shutter and I closed it and we went on doing other crazy stuff and I was using the flash like a hammer. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just like, you set a color on it and you set an F-stop and you check your ISO and maybe it's going to work. There's mm-hmm. a thyristor in it. So I had no idea even if the exposure was going to be right. I was just playing. And when I processed the film and made a print, uh, I had a moment, a big moment. I could see through his body and it was because he moved during the exposure and I had fireworks in my head and I was, I was just like, well, wait a second. Everything just changed. Time plus light plus motion equals something that I want to do. Hmm. And I've been chasing that ever since. That's awesome. I want to say, I mean, I know from my personal experience, but I feel like it's probably similar to like that first moment when you do realize <laughs> the much broader possibility in photography when you start doing long exposure and using flash and stuff to create like ghost-like images and stuff and i feel like that that's one of those moments i think that it, that doors open yeah. for a lot of photographers 
Is that when you kind of like... Let's, let's, let's fast forward to yeah. where we were before. So I, I'm making this cut paper art. Uh, that chapter of my life closes and like I'm moving forward and and I was I had photographed the Coney Island Mermaid Parade for almost a decade. Oh, cool. And I would stand out in the middle of the parade. I bring two different cameras every time and I was at the end of end of the day sitting down at the end of the boardwalk with some strangers and the gentleman sitting across from me started asking about the art that I make and everything. And he said, so you do this paper art and you do this night photography. What else do you do and what do you want to make? And I said, well, I have this idea that I'm afraid of doing. He said, what's that? I'm like, I want to combine them. He goes, well, what's your idea? Turns out this guy was an art director for Newsweek for oh. a long time. And, um, and is a dear friend to this day uh, and collaborator. I said, well... I'm afraid to say it. And he said, what's that? I'm like, I want to ask people to take their clothes off and wear paper fashions in the dark in remote places. He goes, that sounds like a fabulous idea. I'm like, but that's not what the voices in my head are telling me. He says, Matt, you have to do this. Yeah. You absolutely have to do this and I will help you. It's so great when you can talk to like another person that's an artist too. Because I think if you describe that to people that aren't, you know... In art, they, they would agree with that idea that it's insane. Yeah. But then, like, you, yeah. that's amazing that you, were, that you were able to talk to somebody that got it right away and was like, yes. yes. It, it was pivotal. Mm -hmm. Despite that, I still sat on the idea for four years. Okay. I, I had so, this is the dip. Mm -hmm. This is where I said, it's not possible. It's too complicated. People are going to make fun of me. Mm -hmm. Um I've never worked with professional models. Um, I don't ask people to get naked. And I'm not a fashion designer. This is just the beginning of the list of reasons I told myself I couldn't start this project. Yeah. And it was, it was frustrating to know that I had an idea that I was enchanted with, but I had so many reasons not to do it. Mm -hmm. Were most of these reasons self-inflicted, like you were self-imposing these restrictions on yourself, or were there other aspects also of people saying like, oh yeah, I think that that's not going to work? 99% of them. The only one that really could have been a problem then was the, the technology with digital. Mm -hmm. Meaning like digital cameras might not have caught up to the crazy ideas that I had. Mm -hmm. But there's always a way to make it happen. And I shot some of this on film anyway. Um, the rest of them were me basically being afraid of doing something that had so many unknowns in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and I own that. But I don't do that anymore. Yeah. So tell me how you stopped doing that. Because I feel like that's, that's a thing that a lot of artists struggle with, this self-imposed you can't do this, and then they come up with a list of reasons that they can't do something and why it's not going to work. So how do you transition from that to getting past it? Like, and especially when you're your own biggest blockade. I think two, two major things contributed to it. One was opportunity, and the other was a deadline. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that. I was working someplace... And I got to my 15th year there. And I got to that magic time when you get four weeks of vacation. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm taking them all at once. Nice. And my friend and I rented uh, an apartment in Lodo in Denver. 
that was amazing. Yeah, right near the park and everything. And and as we were planning this staycation, this like sabbatical, whatever you want to call it, uh, we we're talking to like, okay, what are the things we want to get done during this month? He wanted to build a robotic wall writing tool where he would program it and he'd feed an image into it and he'd write it. And, and he was working on that project. And me, I said for myself, I said, you know that thing I'm really afraid of? I'm finally going to do it. But setting reasonable goals helped me achieve it. Um, I said, all I need to do is one. I have a month to execute the first one and get over all of my fears, traverse all of these things where I think that people are going to make fun of me or that I'll fail. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, and if I do two, I'll be really happy. And that's, and that's, that's what really got me started was the opportunity to be someplace and set aside the daily things, making space for it. Mm -hmm. And the deadline part was I only had 30 days to do it. Deadlines are are hugely important. They absolutely are. Was success of this in your mind creating it, or was there something that you wanted to happen after you created it? Both. What was the thing that you wanted to happen after you created it? I wanted more people to say that they wanted to do it. Mm. See, I, my, my first shoot, the one in Denver, I went out to uh, Model Mayhem, and I found people who are used to doing nude modeling mm -hmm. to reduce one of the objections that I thought somebody would have. Somebody who's used to getting paid for this doesn't really care mm -hmm. in my mind, right? Um, but I didn't know about GWCs at, the, at that time, uh -huh. guys with cameras. Yeah. Uh, that was explained to me while on the shoot with uh, Skylar, our first model. And she said, you're definitely not a GWC. I'm like, what is that? Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, you know. Dudes with cameras who just like seeing naked chicks. I was like, oh, thank you so much. You know, like, it's, it's not that I don't appreciate the art that we're making here, but but thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. I, I'm serious about this. Uh, so, Was she into the project too? Very. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was a wonderful person to work with the first time. Nice. Uh, because she was, she was willing and able and she held herself very well. So for somebody who wasn't, I had, I had attended a lot of seminars where people taught posing, but until you actually try and do it yourself, you don't realize how hard it is mm -hmm. to imagine and direct somebody to do what you want. Yeah. Because if you don't know what the, you want them to do, they're not going to be able to do it because you have no idea. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that was a huge bonus. Um, when I got home and I showed friends the photographs from the first one. The thing I really wanted to happen did happen. Volunteers came out of the woodwork. Mm. And that's, I want the project, and it remains to this day, I want this project to be representational of lots of different kinds of people, all ages, all walks of life, all body types, because there's beauty in everyone. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I pay somebody to model, it becomes a transactional thing. Mm -hmm. And there's only certain kinds of people that prefer to do that transactional sort of modeling. Uh, so I'd rather have the stories to go along with it and the feeling of satisfaction from my collaborator, because I don't really call them models. Mm -hmm. Like when we get down to make these projects, we usually do three different setups during a night. We're all working together to, to make the art. 
uh, and I take suggestions from them and they take direction from me and and at the end of it um, everyone feels like they were part of the project instead of just there for that segment mm -hmm. uh, so each shoot has led to more shoots and there's a list of people I, I took a hiatus for a little while but there's a list of people who are still ready to jump on board and I'm just starting up again so what would your advice be to people that have a project in their mind that they want to do and they're having these self-imposed doubts and fears? Write down every single objection mm -hmm. and then stand in front of a mirror and say them out loud. You may find that they sound silly when you hear them. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the shadows are not as deep when it's spoken out loud. And then take the extra bold step of taking somebody you care about and reading, telling them about the project and then saying, all right, here's all the reasons why I think I shouldn't do it and tell them that. Hmm. And I think through that process, you'll find out that most of your fears are just, they're your lizard brain telling you that you should not do things that are risky mm -hmm. or part of the unknown. But fuck, man, that's what art is. Mm -hmm. Art is exploring the unknown. And it should be risky. And you should feel butterflies. Those butterflies indicate you're in the right place. So not only is getting over kind of your own your own fears and like acknowledging them and kind of saying like these are not these are not real um, and they're not worth you know being afraid about, but also it seems really hugely important to have kind of like a, a group of people that support you, even if it's even if it's just one person that kind of uh, really supports an idea. You need people who want to support you, not necessarily validate your idea for art. Mm. I think that's the most important thing. No matter what, they want you to do something that makes you happy, and that's that's way more important than them liking your idea because. Mm -hmm. I have plenty of friends who would have said, I love your idea, but technically it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Or do you want to work that hard? You know, or like, so I, I would discount those opinions, but for them to say, yeah, you should be making yourself happy. That's the ideal cheerleader you should, you should have in your life. Hmm. Interesting. Because when it gets down to it, we make art for ourselves not for other people. That point is incredibly important. Uh, and I don't know if, I mean, I'm going to talk for a lot of people, whether it's true or not. I don't know if everybody's figured that out because I think a lot of people, I've done it. I've done this a lot. Like I've made art because I feel like other people want to see it. You get sucked into even like the social media game of like, well, I need to, I love black and white photography. You know, if you look at my Instagram right now, not a lot of it, because I know that Instagram loves teal and orange, and they love color. So do you have to combat that at all yourself? Like the, the idea of like, well, I may not want to make this because it might not be received as well, versus... <laughs> uh, wow. I, I hate to prescribe how other people should conduct themselves. Mm -hmm. 
So I'll talk about how, how I relate to this question. Yeah, that might have been a little unfair to ask you <laughs> to give advice no, to no, everybody. It, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's fine. I, I would love for everybody to feel as comfortable as I do with my project. Did you always feel that way or was this whole transition when you, like, when you realized and you put that 30 days into place and kind of like made your first thing? Is that when you had a breakthrough or do you feel like you've always kind of thought this way? It was probably after the, okay, the, the first shoot upon completing it, uh, all of those nagging voices in my head went away. Hmm. The new voices that replaced them were, ooh, pick me next. All of the ideas I had for locations, concepts for the fashions, who I'd like to talk to about this, who I haven't met yet. So getting those voices replaced was was the most important step at that point. But when it comes to showing your art, I have to be very blunt. I suck at selling art. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with it. Um, I firmly believe that someday somebody who is good at selling art and believes in what I do as much as I do or more passionately will choose my project and help me find the right people. Until then, my goal is not to sell the art. It's to make more. And that's what keeps me going. And honestly, I don't share it. I don't actively share it. Uh, I feature it prominently on my website because I'm damn proud of it. Um, but at the same time, I know that the false metrics of likes um, don't equal sales. And attention uh, is is kind of an empty validation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's great if somebody has forty thousand likes on something, but what's it for? What, what is liking for? I, I think that act of just quickly interacting with something and then departing holds very little value to an artist. Mm-hmm. It can distract you from your purpose. So, yes, social media can be very powerful. But if you answer the question, what's it for, prior to going out and trying to get people to do something with your art, if you answer the what's it for with, I want to sell something, it's totally different than activism, the art, mm-hmm. or to really try and get people to be aware of you know, the negative effects of body shaming. You know, like, do you have a purpose that you want people, do you want to create change in people? Mm-hmm. That's really when social media becomes effective. Uh, as an attention engine, I find it to be very frustrating and shallow. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about national parks at night? Is there a segue into that? There is. I just, I just this weekend finished a night portraiture workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the people there uh, were, let's say half of the people there were attracted to it because they saw night paper. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So it is, so it, it does connect. Everything connects. Yeah everything we do we might not be able to see the dots yet mm-hmm. you know or the lines between them but everything connects yeah I, I read um my gosh my my ex-wife gave me this book it's called the conversations 
It's a, it's a book written by Michael Ondaatje about his conversations with Walter Murch, the film editor. Um, Michael Ondaatje wrote The English Patient, mm-hmm. which was adapted to film. And in these conversations that they had uh, on the surface, it's talking about the art of editing film, but also Walter was really clear that he came up as a sound editor first. Um, and that he also has many pursuits outside of those technical pursuits, which involve art. And he was also very firm in the belief that everything you do informs everything else you do. And that's, that's uh, as, I, as I progress through life, it becomes more and more apparent that everything that I'm interested in and that I achieve and that I study or even listen intently to other people talking about gives me more opportunity to draw lines between the dots. Hmm. And that, that happened with the most unlikely thing, which is um, my, the business that I have with my four partners at National Parks at Night. Um, it is a business solely dedicated to teaching the craft of night photography in national parks. Um, we're very generous with giving out knowledge on our blog uh, because we believe not only will the people who read us be likely to take a workshop, that's the easy part, right? But also, we know that we become better educators uh, because we have to study and publish on a weekly basis. Uh, so that means that we are dedicated to not sharing old knowledge, mm-hmm. but new knowledge. Uh, and further developing our craft. One of the risky things I did with National Parks at Night was I said, hey, guys, I'm going to run an experiment. I want to run two night portraiture workshops. And we did that this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's out of all the kinds of night photography I've done, it's the hardest. Uh, Because the the metaphor I used during the workshop this past weekend was you're building a cake. The first layer of the cake is... You have to compose, focus, and expose. And the second layer of the cake is you have to provide context for wherever your model is standing so they're not standing in a pool of blackness. Mm-hmm. Or that the, the foreground background is not too bright. And the third one is you need to tell the story by lighting the model properly. And then the icing on this cake is your flare. Are you going to have them ghost? Are you going to have them blur through the image? Are you going to do some light writing? What kind of flair do you want to add to further extend the story? And all of this comes from the craft that I put into night paper. It all comes from that, and I'm very clear about that. That's hard-won knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's being taught, although I do see a lot of really beautiful night portraiture on Instagram mm-hmm. you know, and, and some other places. It's, uh, it's just complicated, and you have to have a certain level of mastery over the technique so you can set aside the camera and think about the story. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the hardest part of what we're doing. And that's why it was risky, because normally we're just doing astro-landscape stuff. But once you put a, a person in a photograph, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Then there's a story. Then we think about the photograph completely differently. Right. And we want there to be something that we can impose upon it to imagine is happening, mm-hmm. whether it's actually the intent of the artist or not. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, ev- everything is connected. 
Do you think it's when you add a like a figure in? Do you think that it's it changes things because people are innately curious about other people, and then that takes over the entire image where people are kind of focused on the other person, or is it? Why well, is it something else? I'm still trying to find an answer to that question every time I, I make a night portrait. Mm -hmm. I, it's either you're asking yourself why are they there or what just happened or what's about to happen. And it all depends on how you set it up, mm -hmm. you know, whether there's tension in the photograph or you know, solitude. or There's a lot of things that you can do to lead people towards an emotion. But as much as beautiful night photography can cause emotion, when you throw a person in there, it becomes even more emotional because we immediately recognize that's our tribe. Mm -hmm. And whether we like it or not, we're either concerned for them or happy for them. Uh, and, and it's really up to the storyteller to sort of to set the, the tone for that. Mm -hmm. And that's... And that's what I hope everybody that pursues night portraiture does is after they've they've mastered their technique that they they always before they press the shutter and say I'm done say am I telling a story Thanks to Matt Hill for taking time to talk to me about this topic I hope his experience and advice will come in handy for those of you who are looking to start a new project if you're interested in viewing some of Matt's cut paper art, you can find him at matthillart.com. If you're interested in Matt's educational work of teaching night photography, you can find that at nationalparksatnight.com. If you have a story of a struggle you were able to overcome and would be interested in being on the show to talk about it, drop me a line on my website, thecreativestruggle.com. Thanks again for listening.